0: Sunday mornings. He is teaching every week uh, down in the gym at 9.30 on Sunday mornings, and so you can get more of that there. So again, we're so thankful to him for uh, sharing last week. Also, Kenny and Tyler um, and Carla, and I think there are a few others that took our teens out of town last week. I was catching up with Tyler this morning, uh, just finding out a little bit about Um, Some of the trip and they were just saying what a holy spirit filled time it was and that their students just really uh, enjoyed their time together and um, it was just great great to be together as a as a group and how the lord worked in their midst And so we're so thankful for that Um, But it's good to be back with you a little bit more suntan than perhaps I was last week Um, But anyhow, we'll see we'll jump back in here So we've been in a, a, a series traveling through looking at the life of the great man of god the apostle peter Um, And we have looked at Peter in the Gospels. We've looked at some of the uh, stories, some of the accounts in the Gospels where Peter factored in prominently. And so now we want to transition to look in the book of Acts. And so we'll see some of where the Apostle Peter factors in uh, prominently in the book of Acts. And so the first of those comes to us from Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3 is actually part of a longer narrative that extends all the way through to Acts chapter 5. And we will consider material in 4 and 5 as well today today. But our primary text comes from Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. This is where Peter and John go to the temple. Uh, This is just after Pentecost. Jesus has just uh, ascended back to heaven. Um, They've been waiting. The Holy Spirit's now come. Uh, They've had this massive thousands of people who have come to faith in Christ. And then it's the next day. And so they walk into the temple, and Peter heals uh, this fellow who's been lame from birth. So let's read that story together. I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet. For the reading of God's word, Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. I was talking with Dina actually while I was out on vacation this past week. And one of the things that they do, and I think it's good for us to celebrate as a church, that every week when they're down there in Kidmo, every week when they're down there in Little K, whenever they read the scripture for the day, guess what they do? They stand to their feet. Isn't it great to know that your kids are being trained to have a reverence and respect Uh, for God's Word, even at such a young age. We wonder sometimes, why is it that we get up on Sunday morning? Why do we have to drag the kids out of bed? Well, friends, it's for things like that. It's planting those seeds in their heart. Those are markers that they'll carry with them for the rest of their lives. So here we are standing together for God's Word. Acts chapter 3, we're going to read verses 1 through 8. Here we go. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. You may be seated. All right, let's dig into those verses. And then, like I said, we're going to bleed on into verse uh, chapter 4 and chapter 5 with a story. So, starting at verse one, it says, "Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and some of your translations, it may actually say three p m three p m would have been the ninth hour it 's nine hours after the middle of their day, which starts at six a m so the ninth hour being three p m um, and so at three p m in the afternoon in the temple area, they would have had afternoon prayers, and so that 's what 's happening here at nine o 'clock in the morning, they had morning prayers at twelve or at noon they had midday prayers, and these are the afternoon prayers." Um, verse 2. It says, a man lame from birth was being carried whom they daily, uh, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate. So there's this man who the Bible says was unable to walk since birth. So he's had this some sort of a birth defect, some sort of a handicap uh, that he was born with that did not enable him to be able to walk. Um, to make a living, to provide for himself, it says that he had some po- folks that would bring him ...to one of the gates leading inside of the temple complex, and uh, they would lay him there. And this is how this guy provided for himself, by begging for money. Verse 2 says that he would ask alms of those entering the temple. Also here in verse 2, Luke mentions that this man was placed at a specific gate leading into the temple, and it was called the Beautiful Gate. Now, archaeologists are not 100% sure which gate this was. I've got a picture for you here of the temple. Um, This is just kind of a model or mock-up of the Jewish temple. Um, And so you can see the the scope and the scale of what's uh, in view here. And so the Beautiful Gate, perhaps some archaeologists believe, was the main uh, gate leading inside of the temple itself, the larger complex being outside of there. It's what Jesus did a lot of his teachings. Um, But anyhow, my point is, even though we don't know exactly which of these nine gates it was that went inside the temple, um, you can get a sense of the scale of where Peter and John were teaching. Verse 3, it says, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, the lame man asked to receive alms. So the guy said what he probably had said hundreds of times that very day. He said alms alms for the poor. And so as Peter and John are walking inside the temple, perhaps to make some sort of a sacrifice, they heard this man say these words, and they looked over at him, it says in verse, verse 4. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John. Um, and so something about hearing this man say alms, alms for the poor, I'm sure there were plenty of other people that they passed by, but something about this guy grabbed their attention, and it, they turned, and it says they fixed their gaze upon him. Um... And Peter says, look at us, verse 5, and he has fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. So I suppose this guy thought, well, okay, he's going to come over here and he's going to give me money like people do every day. But it says, verse 6, that Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And then we know the rest of the story. The man who was lame from birth gets up. His ankles are strengthened. His muscles and his tendons are straightened. You can imagine <clears throat> that his legs were probably fairly twisted after all of these years. They were probably atrophied after all of these years of not being able to walk. And it says that the man, verse 8, was walking and leaping and praising God. Now let's just take a step back from the... Yeah, amen. How about that? Um, let's just walk back. That was my dad, by the way. Um, Let's, uh, let's step back and for, for a moment and visualize this. Here is this guy who has been at the temple gate every day, um, every day for all of his life. I don't know if he's in his 20s, his 30s. I don't know how old this fellow is, but every day he's had people that have come and they have laid him down there in order to beg for money to provide for himself. And so the people of the community, the people who are local that come to the temple at those morning prayers, at those midday prayers, at those afternoon prayers frequently, have seen this guy day after day after day. He's a fixture there at the temple. And so now all of a sudden, here is this guy who was walking and leaping and praising God, the Bible says. His muscles were strengthened, his tendons were strengthened, his legs were straightened, and he's able to do something that they've never seen him or even thought was possible they've never seen him do before. And so naturally in verse 10, their response is they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. Now, Peter knows a good opportunity when he sees one, and so he addresses the crowd, he turns to the crowd, and he says, and this is a massive crowd of people because we're about to learn that literally thousands upon thousands of people make a decision to follow Jesus based on this miracle that they just saw. And so verse 12 says, And when Peter saw it, he addressed the men, men of Israel, Why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or our own piety, that is because we're holy men, That we have made this crippled man walk. So, in other words, Peter's saying, We did not do this. I'm not responsible for this happening. John is not the power by which this was able to take place. We have no power to do such a thing. Skip on down to verse 16. He says, you want to know how this happened? You want to know where the power for this came from? Verse 16, it is by faith in Jesus' name that that has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man the perfect health in the presence of you all. So Peter uses the attention that was gained from this healing, which was remarkable. Again, a guy who has been there for decades upon decades upon decades, and now here he is, and he's able to walk. He's not just, not just like a little bit walking. It says he's walking and leaping and praising God. And so this gets the attention of everyone who is there. But there's more. Skip on down to chapter 4 and verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple, the Sadducees came upon them. Verse 3. And they arrested John and Peter and put them in custody, custody until the next day. Verse 4. But many of those who heard the word believed in the number of men, just the men, came to 5,000 plus women and children. So 5,000 people. This is after the day of Pentecost where several thousand people came to faith in Christ. Now here we are in the temple complex. This miracle happens. People locally who have seen this guy realize that there's some power here that we didn't know existed. We didn't know was real. But now we do. We see it with our very own eyes. And so they, thousands of them, thousands upon thousands, put their faith in Christ as well. It's amazing. Now, let me paraphrase what happens next. The next morning, Peter and John are brought before the Jewish high council called the Sanhedrin. And these men want to know, how did you do that? How did you heal this man? Verse 7. By what power or by what name did you do this? Peter tells them. Verse 10. He says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you all crucified... I thought that was kind of funny. He made sure to throw that out there for him. That this man is standing before you well. That's how he got healed. I didn't do it. Again, it was not my power. It was not by my own authority that this guy is healed. This guy was healed because of Jesus. That's how he was healed. Furthermore, verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men uh, by which we must be saved. Peter said to the highest, get this, to the highest political and judicial governing body in all of the land of Israel. These are the men. This is where the, this is the seat of power, the Sanhedrin that he's talking to here. And he says to them that Jesus is the one way to heaven. More on that in just a moment. So the Sanhedrin dismiss Peter and John. They want to talk about this. They deliberate for a while. Peter and John are brought back in, and here's what the council concludes. Verse 18. So they call them in and charge them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. Skip forward to chapter 5 and verse 27. Peter and John and the other disciples have defied the order, right? You can tell us not to do some things, and we'll follow that, but there's some things that you tell us not to do, and that goes against what the Bible tells us to do or what Jesus tells us to do. We're going to do those things anyway. And so there's an authority higher than these folks. So skip forward, chapter 5, verse 27. They're all arrested, Peter, John, and all the disciples. Verse 27. And when they brought them, the disciples, and set them before the council, the Sanhedrin, and the high priest questioned them, saying, verse 28, we strictly charged you, the last time you were here, just like a couple days ago, we strictly charged you not to teach in his name. Now would you notice that the high priest would not say the name of Jesus? He would not say his name. And it's, in the early church years, became a, uh, a, a blasphemy, basically. Certain, certain um, first century rabbinic writings by the time of the fall of Jerusalem in 78 A.D. less than 40 years from these events, was considered blasphemy for a Jew to speak of the name of Jesus. So just in a 40-year window, even less than that, it became blasphemy to, to speak the name of Jesus if you were a Jewish person. And that people who did were placed under a formal curse and or ban, Furthermore, the name of Jesus was scrupulously avoided in the rabbinic writings from this time forward. So here's the beginnings of that. The high priest says in verse 28, we strictly charged you not to speak in this name. He wouldn't say in Jesus's name. And then in verse 40, so they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they let them go. So there's These stories in Acts chapters 3, 4, and 5, but these stories are all conjoined. These stories all flow as one narrative, starting with Peter healing this man who was crippled from birth, and he heals him in the name of Jesus. Well, then that gets them a a hearing in front of the Sanhedrin that say, don't go out and teach. Don't go out and speak in this man's name. They go out and do it anyway, again. And so then they're brought before the Sanhedrin a, a second time. They're beaten and flogged because they were willing uh, to speak in the name of Jesus. But again, they're told, don't do any of that. Now, the conclusion, if we were to draw a conclusion out of what the Bible is trying to communicate to us from Acts chapters 3, 4, and 5, is this. is that there's power in the name of Jesus. There's power in the name of of Jesus, You say, well, Gordon, I mean, so what? So what that there's power in the name of Jesus? What difference does that make to my life? How does that help me where I'm living day in and day out? Well, that's a great question. Let's see if we can answer that. I got two things for us to consider this morning. The first is, number one, that there is power in the name of Jesus to get us into heaven. That's the first difference that this makes to you and I, that there's power in the name of Jesus to get us into heaven. Remember what Peter said to the Sanhedrin, Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. He said, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven. That's where we live. We live under heaven, where, uh, by which we must be saved. When it comes to getting into heaven, friends, the name of Jesus is the one and only name that the gatekeepers of heaven answer to. You may show up at the gates of heaven and say, Hey, look, I belong to Buddha. And the gatekeepers of heaven are going to say, Well, We don't know that name. We don't recognize that name here. You may show up at the gates of heaven and say, Well, I belong to Confucius. Or I belong to the Dalai Lama. And the gatekeepers of heaven are going to say, Well, that name's not recognized here. It's not a name of authority. You may show up at at heaven and say, I belong to Joseph Smith. Or I belong to Rabbi so-and-so. And the angels of heaven will say, Sorry, but those names don't work here. Friends, if we show up at the gates of heaven and we say, I belong to Jesus... Those gates will swing wide and the angels will say, come on in. So listen, if you are here this morning and you are trusting in any other name, perhaps you're trusting in your own name. Perhaps you want to bring to heaven your own merits, your own good works. Friends, that that name's not going to open the doors of heaven to you. The only name that will is the name of Jesus. Jesus said this, John chapter 14 and verse 6. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father. And where is the Father? The Father's in heaven. No one gets to the Father. No one gets to heaven but through me. Jesus is the one and only way for us to be saved. So let me urge us this morning, if you've never given your heart or your life to Jesus, do it quickly. None of us is guaranteed tomorrow. I mean, death does not send out a greeting card before he or she he arrives. We need to be ready. We need to be ready now. Something for us to think about. All right, number two, the second difference that this makes to your life and to mine is that there is power in Jesus' name for us to battle the devil and to put him on the run. For us to battle the devil and to put him on the run. Friends, the Bible says that as followers of Jesus Christ, we are involved in a war. It is a spiritual war, and it goes on every single day. Listen to what Paul writes, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We are involved in a spiritual battle, and that is why Peter encourages us when he writes in his letter, first Peter chapter five and verse eight, to be sober minded, to be watchful, listen now, because your adversary, the devil, is prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In the Greek New Testament, that word devour is a very intense word. It means to literally consume up, to eat up, to destroy something completely. And the Bible teaches us that the devil is, being without a, is, is a being without a single speck of mercy. He has no compassion and that his goal is to swallow us up. His goal is to consume your children. His goal is to consume your grandchildren. That is his intent. To consume you and your friends and to grind us to smithereens, that's what the devil is trying to do. He is not your friend. Sometimes we think, well, maybe I could go play in the sandbox with the devil for a little while. Friends, that's, not, that's just wishful thinking, is all that is. Listen, the devil's end game is to destroy our lives, and he will laugh and he will enjoy it the whole time he's doing it. And that's why the Bible says, James chapter 4 and verse 7. To resist the devil. You say, Gordon, how am I gonna do that? I mean, I, I know that the devil's a powerful being. How am I gonna resist someone who's so powerful? Isn't he one of God's angels? Isn't he one of God's most powerful angels? Yes, he is. So, how am I gonna resist someone who is so powerful? Some, I mean, I'm just a human being here. Well, I'm glad that you asked. If you read through Ephesians chapter six, you'll notice that God gives us a whole lot of defensive armor when it comes to fighting the devil. And that God gives us Scripture, and we can quote Scripture as an offensive weapon when doing battle with the devil. But in addition to these, the Bible also informs us that we can battle the devil using the powerful name of Jesus. Look, take a look at Luke chapter 10. Here's a for instance of this. The disciples are sent out by Jesus to share the gospel. They come back with an amazing report, Luke chapter 10 and verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us. So something's new here. How is it that they're subject to us? Because we preached in your name. They were subject to the disciples because the disciples used Peter's name? No. They were subject to the disciples because they used John's name? No, there was no power in those names. They were subject to the disciples because they spoke in the name of Jesus, and the demons had to flee. They had to submit to that. And in Acts chapter 16, when the apostle Paul was in Philippi, remember he had this young girl following him around who had, who had had a demon. And Paul turned to her and he said to her, or he said to the demon, Acts chapter 16 and verse 18, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out of her, it says, that very hour. So when the Bible says to resist the devil, how do we do it? Friends, we do it by invoking the name of of Jesus, because Jesus' name is the most powerful name. Before we go on, I'm going to talk some more about resisting the devil, but I want to give us a little bit of a con- help us with a concept of how and when this transition took place, because things were a lot different before Jesus came to the earth. I've got a slide for you here. It shows the two ages of human history. If you've been around Hebron for a little while, you may have seen this before. The first is the Old Testament age, what we call the age of the law, and the age of the law began. With creation, so basically the Bible teaches a linear view of human history. Much of the other religions of the world will teach a cyclical view of human history. The Bible says time had a beginning; human history had a beginning, and it will have an end. And so that's what you're looking at there. I uh, began with creation, and it ascent, it ended with the ascension of Christ. Some say it ended with the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D but just some 40 years after the ascension of Christ, you'll notice that there's a second age on that uh, model, and that that is the age of the spirit or the church age. That's the age in which we live in right now. Um, So this this comes after Jesus has died, resurrected, and ascended back to heaven. Now, during that first age, Satan was loose on the earth. He was the prince of the earth. The only place on the planet where he did not have free reign was a tiny little spot on the map called the nation of Israel. Other than that... He ran around deceiving the nations, sowing seeds of destruction. But at the close of the first age, something happened to Satan. Flip over in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20 and verse 1, and we'll see this happen. We'll see what has happened to Satan. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 1 says, Then I saw, this is John talking about his vision. He says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. Verse 2. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Verse three. And he threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed him over sealed it over him, that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that he must be released for a little while. What this verse tells us is that Satan has been bound. Satan has been thrown into hell and that that is where he is today. He is not running amok on the earth like he was in the first age, the age of the law of human history. You follow me so far? Okay, so he's been thrown into hell. He's no longer the prince of this world. He's no longer running around deceiving the nations the way he was and the magnitude quite the way he was prior to Jesus coming to the world. The reign and the rulership of God has come to earth. Jesus announced that the kingdom of God has come to the earth. The whole thing, the cosmos, not just to national Israel, which means that Satan no longer gets to run around deceiving the nations as he did in the first age of human history. You say, but Gordon, I think Satan's still at work in the world. I mean, don't you notice that? Don't you see that? I mean, isn't he still deceiving people? Isn't he still trying to destroy people today? Absolutely, he is. However, just as God's reign and rulership have come to the earth, Jesus announced the kingdom of God has come and extended beyond the borders of national Israel. God's reign and rulership have not come in full. There's still evil in the world. This is not heaven. Though God's reign and rulership have come, they've not come in full. They've come in part, but it has not come in full. Just the same. Um, though Satan's power is to deceive has been broken and diminished, it has not been eliminated completely yet. There will come a day when Satan is unleashed back upon the earth. If you continue to read in Revelation chapter 20, that's what you'll see There that this will take place just prior to the return of Christ, that he will once again have complete re- uh, reign over the affairs of men in the earth. But thank God that we don't live in that age. That age must have been a living hell on earth when G- before Jesus had come, when Satan had full reign over the earth. So that's the kind of timeline of when these things happen and what is yet to come. Let me go back to our question, how do I resist the devil using the name of Jesus? Um. Well, one of the things you got to do is you got to say out loud, because the devil's not omniscient, that you're resisting him. You've got to say out loud that you're rebuking him. He doesn't know what's going on in your mind. He doesn't know what's going on in your thought world. Only God can do that. God is omniscient. Satan's not omniscient. So you need to speak out to the devil and tell him um, that you're you're rebuking him. Tell him that you are resisting him. You say, Gordon, this sounds an awful lot like you're getting Pentecostal and charismatic this morning. What were you reading while you were on vacation? (laughs) Well, friends, this is not Pentecostal. This is not charismatic, and this is definitely not crazy. Friends, this is biblical. This is how the early church prayed. This is how the early church operated. They understood that there was power in the name of Jesus. Would you say that with me? There is power in the name of Jesus. The early church knew this, and they prayed, and they sought after God, and they fought the enemy this way. What is so perplexing to me is that we do not use this weapon today Instead, we go into battle with inferior weapons. And it's either because we're too sophisticated or because we've never been biblically taught on this subject matter. And so we leave this tool out of our arsenal. We leave it laying by the wayside. And we fail to engage this most powerful tool that God has given us, the name of the Lord Jesus. Friends, let me remind us this morning that there is power in the name of Jesus. Number one. There's power in the name of Jesus to get us into heaven. It's the name that the gatekeepers of heaven know and recognize. And secondly, it is there's power in the name of Jesus to battle the devil himself and to put the devil on the run. So may I say to us that the unbelieving world, the folks outside of this building, the folks that have not put their faith and trust in Jesus, they don't have this tool at their disposal. They can't tell the devil to get out, and he has to get out. God has not given them that, that authority, but he has given it to you and I. So followers of Christ, as followers of Christ, we are given the privilege to use the name of Jesus as followers of Christ. We are given the privilege to say to Satan, I resist you for my life today, and I resist you for my heart today, and I resist you for my children today, and I resist you for my grandchildren today. And friends, we can tell him that we rebuke him, and we can tell him to be gone, and he must, he must, he must be gone, because Jesus's name is the most powerful name. It's the name that's more powerful than him. He must yield to it. This is how we can fight the enemy. Tell him, Satan, I resist you for my children. I resist you for my grandchildren. I resist you for my wife. I put a Guys, this is a, you know, one of the roles that God has given, I'm sorry, it's, you know, I've been out of town for a week, I guess, I don't know. One of, the, one of the roles that God has given us as men is to protect our families. You know, we, try to th- we tend to think of, you know, physically arming ourselves, and do that if you want. Certainly nothing wrong with that. But beyond just physically arming ourselves, it's protecting what comes into our home protecting what our children see. It's protecting our families from the attacks of a very real and determined enemy. And so placing a covering of mercy over our families on our way to work, praying God, protect my children today. Satan, I rebuke you from my, against my children today. I rebuke you in the name of Jesus over my grandchildren today. I rebuke you in my home today, in your presence in my home today. And so I beseech you men to pray that kind of a covering of protection over your children, over your wife, over your home. Pray it on your way to work. Pray it on your way to home from work. Pray it in the evening. Pray it in the morning. Tell the enemy, I resist you in the name of Jesus for my family. Church, tell the enemy, I resist you, Satan, in the name of Jesus for this church. I resist you, Satan, in the name of Jesus for the elders of this church and for their unity. Satan, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus for the people of this church. This church belongs to Jesus. I resist you, Satan, for my finances. I resist you, Satan, for my job. Wherever he is loose, we need to resist him. We need to rebuke him. If he is loose in your office, resist him. And some of you are like, he has been loose in my office for a long time now. And I need to rebuke him. I need to resist him. We need to get him out of there so that we can begin having conversations with people. I resist you, Satan, for my family members and for my coworkers and for my friends who are blinded to the truth of the gospel. Their hearts are just hardened, and Satan is hardening that. And we need to rebuke Satan and get him out of there so that their heart can begin to soften so they can begin to hear the truth of the gospel. Friends, when we pray like that, Satan must... Yield. Remember, we're praying in the most powerful name. Friends, this is how we pray. And let me tell you, when we begin to pray like this, God will take our prayers to a different order of magnitude. Because there is power in the name of Jesus, you and I just need to use it. Friends, if you need to resist the enemy for your children, for your grandchildren, for your husband, for your wife, for your finances, for your job, whatever it may be, you resist him in the name of Jesus, and the Bible declares he must flee. Friends, God has given us the freedom and the privilege to pray with power. Let's be a church mighty in prayer because we know how to pray in the name of Jesus. Let's oppose the enemy in prayer. Let's become a mighty army in prayer because you are at this church today. I want your prayer life, friends, to become a prayer life of power because you learned how to use the name of Jesus in your prayers against a very real and a very determined enemy. Let's pray together. Most gracious God, we thank you for speaking to us today from your word. We thank you for a reminder of the tools that you have given us to fight this fight against an enemy that would seek to devour and destroy. Lord, do some of us need to, we need to speak some words this morning? We need to speak some words this week. We need to get the devil out of some places where he's been busy. Lord, may we know that there is power in your name. Lord, we thank you for this time of communion as we remember your shed blood and your broken body, your great love for us. Lord, we just ask that your Holy Spirit would stir and work in our hearts. Show us where we need to be praying. Show us where we need to target our prayers, that they may be answered. Lord, we give you this time. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.